We talk about a worsening physician shortage, but I want to make sure that people understand that there's a physician shortage today. And we actually work and utilize the federal government's numbers that come out of uh, HRSA, which say that there is a shortage uh, right now. But I think the way that it will manifest um, is, is that people will have increasing difficulty accessing healthcare and accessing physicians. And I think that that um, access is going to continue to be more and more difficult. It's a tough conversation, but if we all understand what the, the issues are, we're going to find a solution. In 2021, the Association of American Medical Colleges, or AAMC, released a report indicating a grim physician shortage in our nation's future. AAMC anticipates a shortage within a dozen years of up to 124,000 physicians. In this episode of Moving Medicine, AMA President Dr. Gerald Harmon is joined by Dr. Janice Orlowski, Chief Healthcare Officer at the AAMC. They discuss the complexities of the report, what's driving these trends, as well as possible pathways for solutions. Here's Dr. Harmon. Thank you, Todd. Hello, and welcome to AMA Moving Medicine. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Janice Orlowski, Chief Health Officer at the Association of American Medical Colleges, to discuss the continuing trends that show we're headed for a significant physician shortage in the years ahead, what it means for medicine and for our healthcare system, and what can be done to address it. Welcome, Janice. It's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you very much, Dr. Harmon. Thanks for having me, and uh, thank you to the AMA. Look forward to our conversation. Dr. Olowski, AAMC's report from last June, The Complexities of Physician Supply and Demand, it really paints a pretty grim picture of the future of American healthcare, with a physician shortage of up to 124,000 by 2034, just 12 short years away. What, what does the AAMC research say is driving this shortage? Well, you're right. We are concerned about it, and that is why we are trying to address the issue. The main two factors that are affecting this are, first of all, the growth in the U.S. population. So we are using U.S. census numbers. We see the growth um, in the U.S. population, and that's a big factor. And number two, right behind it is the aging of the population. So we really have the baby boom is, um, you know, they're in their 60s to 70s, maybe a decade, you know, plus or minus on either side. And we know that individuals consume more health care um, after the age of 60. So we've got a very big uh, generation that is moving um, over the age of 60. Those are the two biggest factors. You know, I have to ask, what concerns you the most about these findings? How might patients experience this physician shortage if it's not solved? And how would the entire healthcare system experience it? I, I know there's a broad ranging questions, but I'm interested in the crystal ball that you might have to, to give us some insight into this. Well, you know, it, we talk about a worsening um, uh, physician shortage, but I, I want to make sure that people understand that there's a physician shortage today. And we actually work um, and utilize the federal government's numbers that come out of uh, HRSA, which say that there is a shortage uh, right now. And they have a defined both a primary care shortage as well as a uh, behavioral health, a psychiatry shortage. But I think um, the way that it will manifest um, is, is that people will have 
increasing difficulty accessing healthcare and accessing physicians. That's what we're going to see. And I know that you probably anecdotally um, have heard the story where someone needed to see a specialist and it took six weeks or eight weeks to see a you know cardiologist or a you know GI specialist or or whatever. And I think that that um, access is going to continue to be more and more difficult. You know, and I'll tell you anecdotally, as a family medicine specialist myself, I find that those issues are, as you indicate, they're present with me now. So I have to manage the expectations of my patients and my personal expectations when I make referrals to various specialists, just because they're not as geographically close or they're not as many as I need for the particular urgency of the situation. It is quite a challenge. You know, the AAMC has released similar reports over the many years. And how are perhaps the factors today driving these trends any different than they might have been a generation ago? So um, maybe two or three things that I can point out. Um, first of all, in the early 2000s, when the AAMC talked about the fact that we were going to experience a physician shortage, they called for medical schools to increase their uh, number of, of matriculants, number of students. And so what we've seen since about the mid-2000s, uh, say 2005 or so, we had maybe about 125 uh, MD granting medical schools, and we're now up to 155. And so we've seen both an increase in the number of medical schools, as well as a, a number of um, medical schools that were uh, uh, present that were in existence, they've actually increased their class size. So on the MD side, we're actually seeing a more than a 35% increase in the number of matriculates, which is great. On the DO side, what we're seeing is um, an even greater uh, expansion uh, as you take a look at percentage. Now, DOs, uh, they had a, a smaller number of matriculants, but we've seen that they've uh, doubled in size. So both on the MD as well as the DO side, we have seen an increase in the number of matriculants. Now, it'll get us later into the question of can everyone get a residency program, and, and we can talk about that. But the second thing that um, I would tell you as we take a look at these numbers is uh, as we look at them, we are seeing difference in different uh, areas. So let me tell you, in rural America, we are seeing not only a primary care shortage, but we're also seeing a general surgeon shortage. And so that's an example. Depending upon where you are in the country, there may be difficulty getting to different specialties. And uh, even though we don't often talk about it, there is a problem also in urban settings. And so people have difficulty accessing primary care and accessing specialty care. Uh, and that's probably a combination of insufficient number of physicians, uh, but also uh, insufficient uh, access to insurance and, and, and other factors. But those are the two things that we see are shifting over the last couple of uh, years. And we, as you said, we used to do this report every three to five years. Now we're doing it annually because we believe that these are numbers that are important and that we must address. Thank you, Janice. And you're exactly right. It's, it's, the urgency is now, uh, and I think uh, the AMA has had position statements. The AAMC has been very gracious in uh, supporting our, our reports and yours. But I'm also hearing from colleagues that not only we're not producing enough physicians in, in various specialties, 
but we're also having a, a retention issue. And I, I talked to a lot of my colleagues and they're considering leaving the profession. We've had data from AMA's own polls that show uh, almost independent of the COVID pandemic, as many as 20% of physicians are planning on leaving the profession within the next 24 months. And a substantial number are talking about reducing their access in hours. And, and there are a couple of reasons that they, they offer to me. They're, they're, they're burned out, you know, a common thing. They're fatigued both emotionally and physically. And they're, uh, they're overwhelmed with the, the burden of practicing medicine. Uh, just the impediments that, that we face as practicing physicians every day, the barriers to delivering care in a quality manner from electronic records to prior authorization to uh, uh, the cost of medications. It's just an ongoing assault on, on all of us as providers. And they're really getting out of discouraged. What is the AAMC hearing from physicians that you talk with about the reasons they're considering leaving the profession? We're hearing exactly what you're hearing. Um, we did a study, which we call the National Sample Survey of Physicians. And we do that uh, every couple of years, and it becomes a baseline work for uh, our work on the physician workforce. And, and we are hearing exactly that because of the burden, because of uh, the difficulties in continuing to practice because of well-being issues, people are either leaving the profession or they're cutting back their hours. Um, we, our last national sample survey of physicians was done at just a couple of months before the pandemic in the fall of 2019. And so we actually are launching right now um, a national sample survey um, to take a look at those numbers immediately after COVID. And we are a little bit anxious about that survey and think that we are going to continue to see worsening of the trends of people leaving. One other thing that I would point out to you is that in the next uh, five years, 35% uh, of physicians will be of retirement age. And so we've got, uh, it, you know, if, if it's not that people are wanting to cut back their hours in order uh, for well-being or they're frustrated by practice, we're actually just seeing physicians are getting older and, and getting to the point of retirement. So, you know, that number, it depends because physicians had tended to work longer. So as we take a look at retirement, we might have 20 to 35% of the workforce just leaving because, you know, it's, it's that time in their life. You know, I, I appreciate that. You know, the pandemic, as you mentioned, and I would be concerned about what our new studies might show as we measure, if we can measure, the impact of the pandemic on our physician workforce. I'll tell you, I rotated with, and I periodically rotate as an inpatient hospitalist with our teaching service and our family medicine residents here in my small healthcare system. And I, in the midst of the uh, surge last fall, just after the, we had unfortunately uh, a bunch of summer exposure to more and more coronavirus patients, we were over overwhelmed in our inpatient system. A lot of my young doctor colleagues, my residents, physicians, they were doing heroic work. They were working uh, seven days a week, long hours in the day, and they were doing really good work, but all of them had a little bit of emotional and, and uh, even physical weariness. And they, they commented to me that they, they were very proud of their ability to become doctors and they were uh, very happy about their career choices, but they were thinking perhaps that the frontline medicine could have the emotional wear and tear was really starting to impact their career decision on specialty choice practice types. And these are folks that are just beginning their medical career. So I was real concerned about experiencing what I would say from my military experience was battle fatigue. They were having right. battle fatigue and COVID treatment and COVID response fatigue. Was it, does the AAMC have a perspective? Have you been able to gather any impact of the pandemic 
on young physicians and even medical students? Well, well, I'll tell you, I, like you, Dr. Harmon, I, I rounded this morning, and, and it's very interesting. I've never had so many discussions with other physicians about balance in your life and sort of well-being. And I, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's this fatigue that we're seeing uh, from what we've all gone through in, in the pandemic. And I think that people are reevaluating the quality of their life, uh, their their profession. And and I I think that the number one issue right now for us is to take a look at physician well-being and making sure that uh, physicians feel comfortable continuing to practice, that they that the irritations of practice are minimized. Um, I know during the uh, last couple of years, we've had many conversations with the administration about decreasing regulation and uh, looking at physician documentation needs, and those uh, have been adjusted. The AMA has been a good partner um, as we have had these conversations to, to try to do that. We need to do more of that. The one other thing that I would tell you that we're seeing is before the pandemic, we noted that if you compare uh, millennial physicians to, uh, so physicians who are in their 30s to physicians who are in their late 50s or 60s, we noticed a slight decrease in the number of hours that they work per week. Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a lot per person. It was probably about four to five hours per week. But if you take four to five hours times 200,000 physicians, that's a tremendous decrease in access to physicians. And I think what we're seeing is as people join the profession, um, that not everyone is going to be willing to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I think that there is, and probably for the best, um, there is this uh, uh, desire to have a, a balance to your lifestyle. The one uh, ray of sunshine, and I, ha I have to share this with you because I find it um, just, just wonderful to hear. Uh, as we took a look at... Uh, admissions to medical school and people who uh, filled out applications a year ago during the absolute height of the COVID pandemic, we saw an 18% increase in the number of individuals who applied to medical school. And I, I think the message is, is that they took a look at the work that we and our fellow physicians did, and they took a look at the good we were doing to society and, and the profession itself, and they said, we want to be part of that. So I, I think that there's a glimmer of hope as we see uh, the tremendous increase in the number of applicants. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. Well, that is, as you said, and I've, I've had commentary to that effect, too, that are, if there are some silver linings to this cloud of the COVID pandemic, telemedicine is one, uh, innovative uh, opportunities to take care of patients is another, uh, and as you said, a, a renewed sense of purpose that we're all looked at and looked at the healthcare profession as 
is a real admirable profession. So that may be one of the silver linings. It, as we talk solutions, if we can, Dr. Olowski, there, there are short-term and long-term strategies, and we've talked a little bit about it, asking the administration to reduce the administrative burdens. That's certainly short-term, but I also think, and I think there's some long-term opportunities too. Could you maybe tell us what the AAMC is thinking about as far as strategies that could be effective over the long haul? so that we can ensure we address the problem now, but also don't face a similar one in the future. So I would say that our recommendations fall into a couple of areas. First of all, we know that um, medicine is a, a team sport right now. And I think what we have to do is continue to educate and continue to build strong teams. Um, and that is a way for physicians to continue to, to practice um, at the top of their ability while being able to uh, work with other pharmacists, dietitians, social workers uh, who are able to take on some responsibility in, in care of the patient. And I um, would tell you that one of the things that when I speak with rural America and people who are trying to attract physicians, what I say is, you know, try to make sure that that you're not just trying to attract a physician, but you're bringing together a solid team um, that can provide care. So I think uh, that is one thing. The second thing uh, that we have taken a look at is the different access uh, to uh, physician care. So you mentioned telemedicine. I also think that there's uh, other ways that we can be taking a look at how we can help physicians. There is electronic consults, there's electronic referrals, there's um, asynchronous ways that we can monitor patients. And I think that there's a, a number of different technology solutions, again, that the physician and his or her team can utilize to improve access, to improve oversight of, of the physician without everything having to be a direct um, pay, you know, physician to, to um, patient experience. Um, I know in doing telehealth myself, there are some things that I think are very good about it, and then others that I know um, doesn't, you know, it doesn't substitute for a face-to-face -face visit. But we're learning and, and um, teaching about that. And then finally, the as we have increased the number of medical school slots, we are asking the federal government to fund a greater number of residency slots. Medicare for more than 50 years has supported residency training. Um, there is a uh, section of President Biden's bill that recommends increasing the number of slots that are supported uh, by the federal government. And uh, we believe that 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 is needed. So as we increase medical school matriculants, we need to increase the number of residencies that are supported. And I would say those three things, um, increase the number of residency slots, um, uh, technology advancement, and teamwork um, that is really integrated uh, with a physician uh, are the things that we can do to try and, and stave off this crisis. Thank you, Dr. Olowski. Both our organizations, along with dozens of others, are part of the Graduate Medical Education or GME Advocacy Coalition. And we've been supporting uh, those type of bills in Congress. And you mentioned some of the current activity. And, and you're right. I, I recall that uh, funding for a thousand new Medicare supported GME slots has been included in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. And it calls for up to 200 positions being added annually with the stipulation, however, that no hospital can receive more than 25 
new FTE residency positions in total. Now, this is a step in the right direction, but I've had public messaging on behalf of the AMA that says this is nowhere near sufficient. Growth in the number of residency slots has stagnated since the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 and essentially capped the positions at existing programs. And so the AAMC and AMA and others are part of the coalition are working very hard to improve access for these several thousand medical school graduates who have to find a, a graduate medical education opportunity in order to become part of the physician workforce. Uh, and that's important. I wonder, do, do you think uh, the other magic answers might include, and we talked about it, can we improve other access uh, opportunities for uh, medical students to practice in rural areas? Can you have some ideas what, what we might be able to do to encourage physicians to go into these physician shortage areas, like where I live in the rural area of South Carolina? Absolutely. So a year ago, a thousand GME slots were approved. And as you said, a thousand step in the right direction, but hardly uh, substantial enough. So we've got, uh, you know, several thousand more that uh, is in the president's budget right now. And, and besides those that are just straight up residency slots, uh, the president's budget um, also includes some slots for um, uh, people who are uh, underserved, you know, uh, uh, people of color, people who have had uh, difficulty in paying for their education. And so it's provided uh, uh, support, not just for medical school, but also residency. So there are a couple of different solutions to increase uh, the number of residencies. So that I think is is where we need to go. Um, there's no doubt about it. Um, you mentioned then uh, having clinical spots. As we talk to deans of medical schools, what they say is they are running short of training slots for uh, residents and for medical students. And I think the ability for more people to be mentors and take on uh, an educational role in training physicians is exactly what we needed. What we find is, is that if a medical student resident is trained, has, spends part of their training in a rural area, they are more likely to come back to that rural area. We also know that if we accept to medical school, kids who graduated from high school that was in a rural area, um, uh, or if there's family in a rural area. So I think we have to be very smart as we take a look at the diversity of the classes that we bring into medical school. So not only what's the gender and what's the uh, diversity in race and ethnicity, but what is the um, diversity that there is in geographic background. And all of those factors need to be taken into account as we look at admissions to medical schools. You're right, and that's I see that in my rural, my rural area. If I get young future physicians who have grown up in the area that have ties to the area, they're very much inclined to come back, whatever specialty they choose, to practice in that rural area in their community. So it very much is a, a, a fact. I'll also tell you that the average young doctor graduates with about $200,000 in debt, and it tends to drive them to higher payer positions in larger cities and, and certain specialties that might contribute to our physician shortage in our rural areas. The AMA and the AAMC have both initiatives and in, in efforts to improve that uh, ability to serve that uh, medical school debt and reduce the cost of medical education. And I think that's an important offering we can bring up also. A absolutely. And I, what I would tell you is the AAMC's uh, work in this area shows that uh, medical students and residents are attracted to positions, first of all, 
uh, by strong mentors. And so once again, a pitch to have very strong mentors. If they work with a physician where they see the individual as a wonderful physician, very knowledgeable, helping someone, and they can envision themselves in that uh, particular situation, they're more attracted to that specialty. And so we need strong mentors, um, particularly strong mentors in, in primary care. So uh, that's what we see. I do think that debt burden um, does um, continue to uh, play a factor. We, uh, our, our studies show that there are other factors besides just cost, but debt becomes uh, something that drives people very, very much. And I think that um, we are looking for uh, primary care practices to continue to help uh, mentor residents and, and provide clinical spots for residents where people love practicing. Uh, you know, there's nothing worse than, you know, going to a spot where a physician says, you know, I'm, I'm overworked, I hate this, I want to get out of there. You know, it, it, it just um, completely detracts from the experience. And so we have to remember how important these clinical rotations are in helping to shape our future workforce. Dr. Orlowski, one final comment. And one of the issues we talked about was improving the diversity of the workforce. The AMA has been urging Congress to, when we talk about graduate medical education, AMA has been urging Congress to provide appropriate funding to support the creation and sustainability of medical schools and residency programs that have their roots in educating diverse populations, including historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic serving institutions, and tribal colleges and university. Uh, and, and I know the AAMC has a very rich uh, plan and a very well thought out plan on uh, improving health equity and improving the uh, diversity of the workforce. Any comments from you on that? We are strong supporters of the same efforts that the AMA and, and again, we've worked um, closely together on this. Uh, probably the most striking um, figure that we have looked at is black men in medicine. And essentially the number of black men in medicine is unchanged from 1970. And, you know, so the number of, of medical students have gone up, but the number of, of uh, black men in medicine um, has it. And we do know that um, we need to diversify our uh, medical schools, our residencies. And I think as we have taken a look, we have, uh, uh, we have participated in a summer health education program. AMA has similar programs that they've been involved in. It really is encouraging the pipeline of a diverse uh, group of students uh, to take a look at medical school. And so it's it's not just, um, you know, uh, being good in the STEM fields and, and being able to go to a good college. It's how do we continue to so support people with scholarships? Um, how do we make uh, medical school and residency? And we've already talked about the debt um, that is there. The question is, is how do we uh, continue to support uh, disadvantaged uh, students and uh, show them that there is a pathway for them. So I think that there's much that we need to do with scholarship as, uh, assistance. We've talked about mentoring. Um, we uh, continue to support DACA, as I know you have supported um, DACA as that has gone through. And this will make us um, a stronger physician workforce if we continue to work on diversity. Well, Dr. Olowski, We've had a very good conversation about a lot of things. One big problem, of course, is not having enough doctors in the next 10 years. But there are other huge challenges, not just about enough doctors per se, but the shortages. And we've had some conversation about the right types of doctors and specialty, diversity, and, and practice location. 
and we're doing things now to make headway in these areas. What do you think we can do, not only now, but in the future beyond what we might have discussed? It, you're right, Dr. Harmon. So uh, I would say a, a couple of things. One is uh, to continue to promote uh, those areas where we see shortages. Primary care certainly uh, needs to be promoted. Uh, one thing that I would point out that has really, really has come to light. We talk about the pandemic and everyone thinks COVID, but I want to think pandemic and think opioid. And we are very, very short of psychiatrists and behavioral health uh, physicians. And if we take a look at the aging um, within different specialties. Actually, the mean age is extremely high in psychiatry, meaning that we're going to have more individuals retire in that area. So that is a, a specialty, along with primary care, along with general surgery, um, that we need to uh, we need to continue to encourage people uh, to go into. I had a conversation uh, about a year or so ago with the American College of Surgeons, and they are concerned about the numbers and are working to uh, make sure that they uh, support well-being, that they support a, a diverse workforce, many of the issues that you and I have been talking about that the AMA and WMC have been working on. So I think all of us uh, need to be involved in that. And then in regards to different areas, I would say uh, that there's a couple of uh, programs. One is, is that more medical schools are having regional campuses, and that is to provide experience in rural areas or different uh, non-urban areas uh, where physicians are needed, and we want physicians to be trained in those areas, and we know that they uh, will go to those areas um, if they have uh, training uh, in that area. So I think regional campuses is one way. Um, one very interesting program uh, that I can tell you about is that in the state of Wisconsin, uh, there was a regional medical campus that was uh, opened in the northern part, a more rural part of the state. Um, and so uh, that campus was opened and they specifically looked at attracting um, individuals with a rural background uh, uh, as well as a diverse background. And then uh, this with the state um, and uh, the medical school, what they ended up doing is putting in two residency programs in that area, one in primary care and one in psychiatry. And quite frankly, that's exactly what that area needed. And what we know is that um, upwards of about 60% or so of residents will practice within 50 miles of where they finish their residency. So it's that number used to be 70, it's now lower, it's about 60%. But still, you if you can retain 60% of residents and, and you have the residency in a rural area, that's, that's one of the solutions. So I think that there's creative ways. The, the second thing that we have been working with is HRSA, and HRSA um, is taking a look at how they can bring physicians into uh, underdeveloped areas and using federally qualified um, health centers. And so, again, we know that residencies have been developed in these areas, and uh, we know through some of the Title VII um, support, we can uh, bring individuals into residency and then um, to train and to practice uh, in these underserved areas. So those are two examples where we have been uh, working and looking at uh, making sure we're we're dealing with some of the uh, really significant uh, geographic disparities that we see. Medicine doesn't stand still, and neither do we. 
AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Dr. Olowski, one of the things I would comment on, and I've had some conversations with an academician or two about improving the number of graduate medical education slots, and I, I mentioned that they do have some growth, uh, a thousand here, a thousand uh, uh, there, so to speak, and they're limiting them to certain areas uh, and certain types of specialties. They, meaning the government, is recommending that, that we uh, expand, as you said, residency slots and more community-based residencies, which would be great for the uh, physician shortage areas, no question. But I think it it does beg the question um, of how much infrastructure might be in place if we limit growth if we as a profession limit the growth of graduate medical edu education opportunities to small communities or regional centers that may not have an existing infrastructure of academics uh not necessarily research but just academics and teaching scientists as it were then it's hard to get some of our uh, surgical specialties or medical oncology type specialties or other uh, specialties that are uh, more organ-based as i would call it as a family medicine specialist that you really don't have the teaching infrastructure or the clinical skill set or the clinical uh, range that you might be able to uh, qualify uh, to, to graduate a fully certified and trained specialist without having more infrastructure in place. And it's going to take a long time to put the infrastructure in place to do this. So in the short term, perhaps we could ask uh, uh, a bit of a waiver to allow our existing residency programs that have some larger institutions as their academic base to grow their graduate medical education opportunities to help provide the specialty care that we are anticipating, you and the AAMC and we and AMA are anticipating being physicians short of specialty areas in the next, in the coming decades. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it, you know what, it's expensive to educate medical students and residents, it really is. And, and as we take a look at the large academic medical centers who have uh, they have professionals in adult education and uh, the infrastructure that's needed for uh, residency programs. So I agree with you. If a rural hospital or a rural clinic is interested, I really think partnering so that the infrastructure is there is absolutely um, what we uh, need to do. The AAMC on our website has a, a, a PowerPoint presentation that anyone can take a look at that talks about um, sort of the cost and the resources that you get. And people always think, oh, you know, you, you get money from the government if you have uh, graduate medical education. Well, believe me, we're, we're grateful that we have some money, but it doesn't cover all the expenses. It is expensive to have an educational program. Um, on the other hand, though, as, as I've uh, talked to some uh, areas that we I would say is atypical to have residency programs. I think you have to take a look and say why are they doing this. So, for example, HCA, very large um, uh, chain of health systems, hospitals uh, across the United States, they have gotten into the graduate medical education business over the last couple of years. Now, HCA is not known for you know academics that that wasn't their core competency. But as they took a look at the number of physicians that they needed and that they needed to continue to have in order to support their hospitals and their ambulatory clinics, they understood that 
they needed to participate. And so you saw actually under Jonathan Perlin, um, an expansion of their GME program. And I mentioned that Dr. Perlin now is moving over to the Joint Commission. So we'll we'll watch and continue to see if HCA continues this. Um, The other group that has uh, gotten into training medical students is um, Kaiser. Now, Kaiser did have residency programs before, but not medical schools. And Kaiser uh, took a look and said, you know, as as part of this need for physicians, we need to participate and we're going to open a medical school that is supported um, by the Kaiser Permanente uh, group. So I think that you see many systems saying we know it's expensive we have to do this right um but we need to be part of the solution and so we're seeing a growth of residency programs in not just the large typical academic medical centers but we're seeing um growth throughout and and you you and i've talked about the support needed for the historical black colleges which have you know really um are the place where a diversity in workforce where where the most physicians of color are trained and we need to continue to support HBCUs, but we also need to diversify our other medical schools. So these are all areas that we need to continue to support and work on. Um, And the bottom line is we need more, we we have a growing number of medical students and we need more residents. We do. And I, I think to kind of put to rest, I've I've heard some of my uh, patients when I describe the physician shortage, because I have a shortage here in my community. We we talk about not enough family doctors and everybody's worried when I'm going to retire, what are we going to do? How many doctors will it take to replace me in my practice? And I understand all of that. And we do see a right now a gap that doesn't have a lot of quick fixes. The point is, you can't just quick fix a doctor supply. It takes years of training for physicians to be qualified. You can't just say, all right, we need more doctors in five years. Let's turn out more to your point. It takes years of college and medical school, graduate, postgraduate medical education that it, you're looking at a seven to 10 year career after uh, a year or two of college before we can enter the workforce. That's right. And, and what we have said to the federal government is wake up, look at what the shortage is, and if we are going to affect the shortage that we anticipate in 10 to 15 years, we must act today. It, it is absolutely needed. And, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, physicians are trying to control the number of doctors. Um, actually, couldn't be further from the truth. If you take a look at the schools that have um, opened since uh, the, the 2000s, some of these are state schools. Uh, some of these are private schools. There's really, there's no one organization that that can um, control that. Now, certainly the AMA and the AAMC in partnership um, uh, have, uh, you know, for a long time supported the LCME, which is the accreditation of medical schools. But there's, there's nothing that says only this number of doctors. We have said, if you have the resources and you meet these accreditation standards, um, there, there's no limit to uh, the number that get approved. And so I think the growth of medical schools over uh, the last 15, 20 years is an example that there really is no impediment to the growth of medical schools. It's just an, an impediment to have the resources and the time and, and the people who dedicate themselves to, have very, to having a very solid, very good medical school. Absolutely. And, and, and I'll... Uh 
comment, not only at students getting into medical school, but to your point, typically traditionally medical schools have a couple of years of basic science where you learn the pharmacology, the cell physiology, you learn the language of medicine, you learn the science, then you have a couple of years of clinical experience. And the third and fourth year medical students really have to struggle, to my experience and your commentary earlier, at finding clinical practice locations because to the, to the point that we have a physician shortage, that means we have less opportunities, especially in the rural communities where I live, for physicians that are already busy and uh, uh, very burdened with their clinical needs to take care of the growing patient population and physician shortage area, to take on the extra task, not a burden, but the task in their, in their workday to teach and train and become that role model, model and mentor for medical students it is problematic. So we really have a, a problem now that it urges Congress to open up the opportunities for us to um, get more training slots and to incentivize physicians, reduce those barriers to patient uh, care, the barriers to physician satisfaction and wellness so that they can have the time and the energy and the enthusiasm to train these medical students and have them experience how much fun and joy it is in, in being a doctor. And, you know, you and I, Dr. Herman, have uh, talked about the uh, need for the federal government to step up uh, support. Uh, one thing that I would uh, remind uh, individuals who are listening to this is that there is a role for state and local governments as well. And so we both the AAMC and the AMA have supported uh, areas, and I'll give you an example, in Texas, as they've taken a look at the tremendous shortage that they've had, they actually have built medical schools in Rio Grande and in and in Tyler. You know, they've taken a look at their state and um, from a state uh, economic, you know, how are we going to support the people? What they've said is besides schools and, and places to work, we need to have a, a solid health care um, system within Texas. And so you, so you see that state governments have a role in helping to support new medical schools, but also um, right now there are about 40, 43 states in the district uh, provide some support to graduate medical education. And that support is uh, needs to not only stay, but we need to take a look and say, uh, are the states and local governments doing enough to support uh, residencies? So that's a, another area for people to become involved in and to encourage and to make sure that their representatives understand what the shortage is and what can be done to, to help it. To your point, I've had some personal conversations. Many of my physician colleagues in organized medicine have the same conversations with state legislators who are, um, are asking, well, let's just have another medical school, Dr. Harmon, in the state. It is good to have a medical school, but they need to understand that we have to have the graduate medical education opportunities. And that's a very good resource to bring on board as the state legislative and the state economic uh, support is critical to taking care of our patients and making sure that health care for all is really, uh, it becomes a reality. That is a great idea. Absolutely. And you know, it, that's when you say um, care for all, and I'm gonna take us in a, a, a sort of another direction that we have to talk about. The numbers that we uh, look at, that we've been looking at, is we start with today's numbers in regards to access and the number of physicians. And we say, okay, we know there's a, a shortage in primary care and in psychiatry, but let's take a look at the growth under a couple of different scenarios. If, you know, if we had more doctors, if we 
uh, if managed care was different. And we look at, uh, at all of these scenarios. The one part of the report that I'd like to make sure I highlight is, is that um, there's a part that says equity of utilization. And that's a, a fancy word uh, that we were trying to uh, say that right now there is uh, not equity in access to physicians. We know that the white population has a greater access than the African-American, the Hispanic, and, and other uh, people of color. And so one of the calculations that we do is a calculation that says, what if everyone had the same access? And if everyone need, had the same access, we would need more than 100,000 physicians today. And so we're so you and I have talked about the growth that we need based on the population and the aging of the population and sort of the system staying and growing as it is. The other calculation that is in our most recent reports challenges the current status and say, let's not grow as uh, you know a system that just grows off of the current um, base, so to speak, but let's have a system where there is access and there's um, equity of, of utilization um, to all populations. And those numbers uh, become even larger. So as we seriously, as, as we as Americans seriously take a look at equity and um, our role in looking at and promoting diversity and equity and inclusion, uh, the numbers that we need for an adequate physician workplace are even larger. Impressive numbers and uh, sobering numbers, I would say. It's AMA's strategic uh, mission is to advance the art and science of medicine and the betterment of public health. And to, to your point, the betterment of public health for all. So. Health equity is an accelerator for all of our strategic arcs, and you, clearly the AAMC understands that and, and lives that recommendation as well. We have quite a challenge ahead we in do. our physician workforce. Dr. Janice Orlowski, you've just been so gracious for joining us. I want to thank you so very much for that and the AAMC's extensive work to draw people's attention to this very serious matter of a physician workforce shortage. I hope the two organizations can continue to work together to make sure our nation has a physician workforce it needs to take out and take on the tremendous healthcare challenges we face today and far into the future. I uh, really appreciate you joining us today, Janice. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Harmon. Um, and thank you to you. Thank you to the AMA. Um, it's, it's with our organizations working together and quite frankly, working with our members um, that we're gonna fix this problem. So thank you so much for inviting me today. Um, it's, a, it's a tough conversation, but if we all understand what, what the, the issues are, we're gonna find a solution. Thank you. Thank you again so very much. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine. Thanks for listening.